Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Hi, welcome to another episode of Another World is Potable. Um, I'm here with a really special guest, someone uh, who's just really at the forefront of, I think, I mean, you know, we, we say this a lot in terms of Another World is Potable, but someone who's actually, you know, doing cutting edge thinking around and, and work about how do we reimagine the future and make it a reality. Um, and so I'm so excited to have um, our guest on. So I have Aisha Hamid. Um, she is a professor at Goldsmith and she's worked really, I mean, on a range of things around, um, you know, speculative fiction, futures and fiction. And I'm going to, you know, allow her to do most of the thing because uh, all the different things she's doing, but it's really all about ways in which we can rethink our history and therefore rethink our possible futures, um, which is Many is what was the inspiration of this show. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so I asked this to kind of everyone to start, but I'm I'm you know, particularly in a few because you know you're 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 an incredible scholar, but you also do, you know, art, you do uh kind of interactive exhibitions, um, you know, you do really critical work around, you know, public education. So I mean. It, the amount of multi, we, we constantly say we want someone who's multidisciplinary, but you truly are multidisciplinary and you use it in a range of different ways. So what is your intellectual background and what was your inspiration? Um, oh, thank you. Sorry, I'm just a bit embarrassed by that uh, framing, but thank you so much. Um, uh, so I don't know where to start. Okay, so I'm, um, I was educated in Canada, I did my all my studies there. And um, this was at a time before there was anything like practice based uh, programs, practice based research mm -hmm. programs. Um, so I, my, my PhD was sort of focusing on histories of transatlantic slavery. Um, while, uh, while with a kind of focus on sort of rereading it through the prism of the 19th century, like sort of discourses of 19th century mm. modernity, um, and sort of saying that actually the kind of uh, repressed uh, sort of prehistory of it was the sort of wealth and the kind of, um, that was gained through transatlantic slavery, but also sort of systems of oppression that were sort of perfected mm. in that period. Um, and then at some point during my PhD, I didn't want to be doing a PhD anymore. So I sort of dropped out and uh, went to art school for a while. And um, I sort of developed a practice that 
was like a kind of art practice that mm, explored more my own experience as a migrant. So my family moved to Canada from India and I also um, spent about 10 years there in my formative years. So a lot of my work was sort of around that. And then I also was doing um, a lot of organizing work, like political organizing work with known as legal mm. and actually hosting, co-hosting a radio show um, with no one is legal on campus radio. Um, so I sort of had these sort of parallel practices, one which was sort of historical, looking at transatlantic slavery. Uh, partly I sort of chose to do that because there is this kind of expectation, I think, if you are a migrant to write about your own um, background and history that you're somehow mm -hmm. a native informant of some kind. And I was really uncomfortable with that. And so for me, sort of, exploring you know following eric williams work and others like this relationship between capitalism and slavery uh was mm. my sort of intellectual formation but at the same time i was really involved with um uh sort of as a as an activist and organizer and also as an artist sort of thinking about more contemporary issues around migration um mm. and then i uh, finished my PhD and uh, dropped out of my MFA <laughs> and uh, uh, started a postdoc uh, here in London at Goldsmiths um, with what is now Forensic Architecture, what used to be the Centre for Research Architecture. Um, and I then ended up I, I, working on a project um, looking at this migrant camp in Calais uh, called, called The Jungle and sort of thinking about the, like the kind of well, the kind of racism sort of inherent in just naming it the jungle, um, but also thinking about mm. the ways in which the issue, like the quote unquote problem of migration was sort of solved through uh, territorial means. So by that, I mean that what happened was, was that periodically the campsite was raised, you know, the, 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 the tents yeah. torn down, um, uh, uh, migrants, uh, illegalized migrants, um, were play, were forced to move into um, uh, former storehouses for that were used to build the Euro Tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. So it was like this kind of displacement of an issue of people onto territory. Um, and I, so I, this this was a postdoctoral fellowship, and I were I I sort of did work on this for a number of years, and then. Um, at some point, I uh, after I finished my fellowship and was working, I I started sort of puttering around with this kind of thinking that there was there had to be some way to bring these two conversations together. That is, uh, mm. this 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 sort of long term research I've done on transatlantic slavery and this kind of contemporaneous um, sort of crisis. Uh, quote unquote of illegalized migration and um, I think now like this was like 2014 or so and um, I think it now now like to draw this analogy is not um, so uncommon but at the time I hadn't I, I was sort of trying to figure out a way to bring these together without doing flattening one moment or doing an injustice mm. to it and um so then I sort of started, I initially Black Atlantis was going to be a book and, um, but it just felt like it was to do that would sort of 
make one into a metaphor for the other, draw two straight line. And so I started giving these talks that were just kind of assemblages of these mm. two moments. And there was really like a collection of sounds and images and narratives and that were sort of put into contrast with one another. And so that's what this project I've been working on pretty much since 2014 has been doing is sort of looking through different formal means, ways to read these two moments together, but also through kind of mobilizing um, the sort of the watery depth. So thinking about this, the Mediterranean crisis and the, the sea as a kind of protagonist, and then thinking about the the the, the ecologies of the uh, sea below the the slave ships, um, and trying to figure out uh, complicities and resiliences um, in drawing this kind of vertical axis. That was a very long answer. <laughs> no, I, I I think it's a perfect answer, and I think it you know it it really you know does justice to the breadth of your project which i i think is ambitious but really beautiful and important and you know i i i i think one of the aspects that i have found very interesting um just in my own experiences both in, in scholarship but in, in in just you know in my own experience as activist etc is that you know the the ways in which even people who want to look at this don't actually take seriously how formative and important the Black Atlantic was for everything that exists now in a way that's not flattening. But I remember, you know, even being at political economy conferences or things like that and the talking about race and as if it's ancillary. And, and I'm thinking, where do you think, you know, all we talk about, all, all our entire discipline is based on is human capital where do you think human capital came from on an industrial scale, yeah. right? So I think, you know, to, 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 to bring that in the way that you have um, with Black Atlantis, and which, which we're going to talk about more later, which I think is wonderful, but, you know, it's so important, to, you know, and, and the ways in which you framed it and done it is so visceral, but also deep and exploratory and implicative. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Um, is really fantastic. I mean, but I think one of the one of the aspects, and I, I think it touches on this, is you know just for some of the listeners. I mean, I think that maybe they, they'd understand. Okay, well, you know, here's you know here's a rigor in which we would look at history, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's happening in the mm -hmm. past, and here's a rigor in which we would look at something like the present. Yeah. But your work has also had a temporality in which you've kind of demanded that we or not the man, but I think, you know, you're, you're part of a movement that is asking us to take seriously the speculative, just to take seriously the future making and the prefigurative. And in that sense, I wanted to just, you know, and, and I know, you know, on a very basic level, right? What's the ways and differences between kind of everyday ways in which, you know, we might imagine the future or be fantastical in a sense in the future and the kind of more rigorous efforts that you're doing pedagogically and scholarly and activist wise to actually, you know, create a future, um, uh, I, I wouldn't even, a, a, a kind of future building culture, a speculative culture. I mean, what's actually at stake in terms of, you know, how we think speculatively? Um, well, there's so much that you said there. And I have to think about that. But no, 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 it's really interesting. Um, 
well, there's a few things that that I can think of. One is just that. Um, uh, no, where do I start? <laughs> um, well, okay. So, so, so Black Atlantis sort of came into formation for me, or sort of started falling into place when I discovered this um, this late '90s, early 2000s um, outfit from. Uh, Detroit called Dexia, this electronic uh, music duo who were really active in the Detroit um, techno scene. And uh, in their album titles and um, liner notes and track titles, um, um, they sort of created this, uh, what I guess, a kind of a sonic fiction. It was a kind of continuous story that was I guess in the genre of Afrofuturism, which speculated that uh, men and women who were thrown over slave ships, which is something that uh, did happen, um, um, adapted to form underwater uh, creatures. So the, the very grisly sort of um, and kind of gruesome image they take is that uh, unborn children who were born who were still within their mother's wombs, adapted from living in amniotic fluid um, to seawater. And then they sort of tell all these fantastical states, uh, these fantastical stories of uh, adaptation and resilience. They form this underwater city called Drexia. They form these webbed feet and start hopping and skipping, they become wave jumpers. And then they evolve finally to um, go into outer space. And for me, what this story did is sort of provided a kind of, um, a couple of things. One, it was that it sort of made me think about the ecology um, of the water underneath slave ships as a sort of source of survival and resilience. But it also um, sort of brought in this kind of speculative futuristic image. So like they're sort of reading this historical you know, systematic killing of men and women on these slave ships from the speculative futuristic perspective. So the future and the past um, sort of get not combined, but they're juxtaposed or they become something uncanny. And I thought, oh, like, this is this, this kind of temporal leap with all of its fissures allows me to draw a kind of arrow towards the crisis of Mediterranean migration. Um, and to me, this these two historical periods and this image of Drexia would, I think, fall into what Walter Benjamin would call a dialectical image, which is uh, an image that brings the past into the future, brings two temporal moments into a kind of collision with one another. And, um, and in that collision produce a sort of set of possibilities or affect or some notion of messianic time. And I think, What's really powerful about the Drexian image of of the evolution of this underwater um, civilization is to sort of take the most violent uh, image you can imagine on board a slave ship, which is of this, the the very cynical drowning of men and women for insurance purposes, and turn that into a story of um, not just resilience but a kind of celebratory resilience. Um, so it's both one and the other. It's an it's a moment of extreme violence, and it's also a moment of extreme refusal of that violence. Um, mm. And yeah, so I think that the the future is sort of 
becomes, I mean, there's all kinds of things you could say about the future. It's a sort of loaded topic. Is it one of the things we could think of following Franco Barati is that the future has been completely co-opted by capitalism, you know, like the kind of our imaginations of transform transformation have been co-opted into buying this or into kind of consumerism or a kind of sense of self that's tied in with that. But I feel like what this does is by sort of making the future the material of the present, that there's a kind of, um, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like a re-engineering of the past through the future, which Afrofuturism already managed to do so well. It becomes something that infiltrates the present, you know, uh, in, in, in just the way that Benjamin talks about it, this idea that, you know, every moment can be is punctuated by this splinter uh, of messianic time, this possibility, like a splinter of, gl of glass. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And, and that's a really, really, I think, wonderful uh, description of it. And, and I like, I really like that uh, kind of term and uh, of infiltration, because I think, I think one of the aspects of capitalism, and particularly racial capitalism, uh, that is often oh, forgotten is that it is extraordinarily insatiable in terms of any and all futures, right? It, it wants to colonize every single future, right? Whether it's something that is directly consumeristic, like uh, work-life balance yeah. or something, or, you know, even, I mean, it's incredible, like, look how they've turned something like, you know, cooperative enterprises into, you know, uh, something that, you know, fits very well within a, a, uh, a capitalist kind of market economy, right? Or even something like we have climate change happening and, you know, let's turn this then into a market-like green solution. So I think what you're talking about then is a kind of reversal of that in a very deep way about what would it mean to actually think about all the ways in which, you know, the past didn't produce something different. What, what are all the things we've already lost in the present that weren't allowed to exist? Um, and, and that kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I like the messianic aspect of that because it is a specter, right? It, it's like all the things that could exist and could have happened and didn't happen, right? Um, how does that kind of serve as a specter to drive us forward to different alternatives? Um, yeah, I mean, yes and no, because I also think that one of the sort of, I mean, one of the sort of key like narratives that comes out of, say, the Black Atlantic or transatlantic slavery is it's so like the narrative is so top down, you know, it's from a, such a from above sort of story, and I think it really flattens like the kind of agency that that that, that you know people who were abducted and you know uh, enslaved had, and I think what Drexia does is sort of rejigs the kind of triumphant narrative history to sort of allow mm -hmm. for you know these these sort of lines of flight that probably were enacted in a you know obviously it's a less speculative um uh you know fanciful way than how drexia did but i think that there there are stories of survival and resilience and they've just sort of highlighted by you know pulling into it so it's like in a way like the future becomes a way of um, amplifying resonances that are already in the present, if that makes sense. So you cast mm. this sort of whole story underwater and, you know, then 
you know, all of a sudden the story becomes part of a larger aquatic ecology and, um, and through that kind of uncanniness, you could also consider forms of agency that also existed at that time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then mm -hmm. I think also just to sort of tie in something that you just said a, sec a second ago, which is that to sort of think about, you know, um, the inextricability of capitalism and slavery, uh, but then to tie into that, um, the in inextricability of climate change and the kind of devastation of the environment um, mm -hmm. with the sort of the triumphant kind of march of capitalism and its imbrication with um, with with the history of the slave trade. Um, all of those things sort of produce and I don't know what you'd call it, like an ecology of its own, you know, and I think to bring all of this underwater, I think highlights how you can't think of the devastation of uh, the environment without the sort of twinning of um, racial racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I, and again, I, I think that's a, that's a really nice way to put it. And, you know, I, I think that also, as you've said, I mean, it's a, it's a recapturing in these kind of very imaginative ways of the agencies that are that existed but are often forgotten or are you know uh, left out of the hegemonic stories i mean i, I think about you know that there's movements now but on um uh, kind of heritage plantation sites in the united states that tourists mm -hmm. go to right like what kinds of triumphant narrative is being told there right um, and how does that allow people to distance themselves from the realities of, you know, the still existing implications of racial capitalism and from, you know, climate change all the way to our everyday lives of how we understand in ourselves and knowledge mm -hmm. and each other. And I really liked how you put that, that it's a, it's a kind of, um, you know, rediscovering of agencies that exist and existed um, and putting them in a, you know, liberating and but also, yeah, I mean, a quite wonderful context for us, you know. So that that I'm kind of just restating something you've just said it much more concisely and oh, inspiring. No, no. So I apologize. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, no, that that's really brilliant, and and I think that that takes. I mean, one of the things I've always loved about uh, your work, and and you know, also some of the work you is that, you know, I I, I always feel very um things like so. I, I work on projects now that uses augmented reality to help different communities, you know, build alternative futures in their own uh, communities. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I come from a, a really kind of horrible modernist tradition, and, and I use that word very seriously about, you know, I just spent, besides my work as an activist, as a scholar, I spent so much of my time just in a library. You know, it was just writing and reading. Um, which I think is wonderful. And, and and I have to say for people when if you and I'll put the link to it, I mean the exegesis as you do as part and parcel to, you know, uh Black Atlantis is incredible. I mean it's it's amazing. But you know, you mentioned art school, but I mean you've been able to kind of take art and visual art and performance and really make it into something that is a serious critical pedagogical intervening, but also very scholarly project. 
And I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, how did that emerge? I mean, what kind of challenges do you see? And, and how do you think this gives us, you know, even, you know, a different way for us to think about knowledge production and knowledge exchange and kind of emancipatory networks um, that, you know, really expands, you know, what critical scholarship can be? Um, oh, thank you so much. Um, let me think about how to answer that. Well, the way, the, the way that this project came together uh, back in the day was really quite organic. You know, I spent a number of years in art school sort of thinking that rather than just make work on the side of doing my PhD or my academic work, I needed to sort of really reprogram how, like my approach to, to ideas and like thinking about form. Um, and none of it really came together actually. Uh, you know, I sort of had a separate sort of art practice that was sort of doing its own thing. But with Black Atlantis, because the scope of it was so broad and I guess in a way really, I wouldn't say ambitious, but sort of unmanageable, you know, because it was sort of thinking about Mediterranean migration, it was thinking about transatlantic slavery, it was thinking about uh, climate change. And then I sort of fell into this whole rabbit hole around Detroit techno. Um, all of a sudden, writing that in a linear format didn't make sense. And working with music, because I, so I sort of came to Detroit techno through the story of Drexia. Um, as opposed to through the music. So it's kind of a pretty nerdy way to, to enter into Detroit techno, but I sort of had to start listening, like sort of listening to and sort of trying to understand um, what it was that brought people into such, you know, um, apart from the kind of collapse of Detroit, but sort of thinking about what was sonically happening um, in terms of what Drexia, but also what underground resistance were doing, like other, other, um, other um, bands or outfits in that in that period, and so this what the sonic sort of opened to me was also how the body gets implicated because bass sort of does something to your body, it does something to your skin, it does something to your organs, it sort of moves you in a certain way. It's sort of an anti-intellectual kind of wisdom, right? Like there is something that's getting imparted, and there's a mm -hmm. kind of collectivity. So there's a lot of like plates spinning in the air, and um, Initially, what I started doing was, which is now what I would, I guess, would be retrospectively called um, performance lectures. But to me, were just these sort of audiovisual essays that, you know, I'd go up and just basically, um, and I guess this is my training as someone who read a lot of Benjamin, is that I just would present things in juxtaposition and not explain them. You know, I just say, here is a picture mm -hmm. of... Um, a futurist sculpture and a picture of a sound system in Jamaica. And let me just say a little bit about time, how I think time functions here. <laughs> and then I just leave it for the person, whoever was watching to make sense of it. Um, so I guess, like you said, it started off in this kind of pedagogical way. And in a way, you know, even back in the days when I was doing my PhD, I was sort of attracted to having a practice partly because you know, I, you know, I liked making things, but also because it was just a different way to circulate ideas. So you go, you make like a, th a three minute video and, you know, if you show it at a few uh, DIY screenings, like all of a sudden a hundred people have seen it, you know? And uh, so it's, and it's, and video is really nice that way because you just send someone a link and they can just see it anywhere in the world. And um, actually this, this previous project I did when I was 
working on the Calais jungle, I uh, made this film uh, that was sort of about a lot of the research I was doing, and it's been screened at uh, by um, uh, organizations supporting uh, asylum seekers. And so to me, that meant a lot, you know, I mean, an essay, an academic essay wouldn't sort of circulate in that way. Um, but yeah, so so once I started on this path, like it wasn't like I said, oh, Black Atlantis is going to be this art project. It was just more that formally, um, that's the only way I could contain all of these ideas. And then everything sort of evolved from there. So there's about five chapters of Black Atlantis. And so a couple of them were these sort of performed audio uh, visual essays or performance lectures. Um, one of them was a kind of live sound performance where I thought, well, I can't just keep on referring to Drexia without um, engaging with what they sound like. So I, I teamed up with a friend of mine, an electronic musician named Tom Hurst, and we made this piece where, um, oh, sorry, that's my phone. I'm going to just turn that off. Wait, you guys are not oh, live. <laughs> Okay, so um, what was I saying? So yeah, so Tom, 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 and I, Tom Hurst and I, got together and we made this piece where we were. Um, it had five tracks of like live and pre-recorded sounds, and we used uh, music from Drexia, but we also used other sort of aquatic bands, and we mixed it with the sounds of whales and ice quakes and recordings of um, of poetry. And then we, what I did is I got um, friends of mine all over the world. I mean, we're working again, you know, against the clock. <laughs> um, and I just sent mm. uh, passages to friends around the world and they just recorded uh, quotes by people as diverse as H.P. Lovecraft and Fred Moten and Christina Sharp into their phones and they sent it. So we were live mixing that. I had written this um, script that Tom and I were reading aloud and we were playing video like um, from from David Attenborough's like you know what's it called Blue Planet and um, yeah and so it became a so that was like sort of an audiovisual essay and then I t and then I got together with a filmmaker from um, Mauritania and Senegal and we made a piece um, about uh, migration from West Africa to Europe uh, so it just took on a lot of different forms and it became the sort of means with which to sort of start a few different conversations. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess I have a, a question in terms of also medium. I mean, because, you know, you do work across so many different mediums and, and it is, a, uh, you know, it is, it is both uh, something in which people can experience, but also, you know, that it's a kind of this way of making, I, I think this kind of, beautiful, liberating kind of, pre you know, it's both speculative and prefigurative in that sense that, you know, even watching it on video, I feel as if like, I'm in this kind of almost moment with people where, you know, the inevitability of things is suspended and new connections and can be made. Um, and I'm wondering from your view, what is that relationship between having kind of installations that people can come to in person and feel that potential sense of community and our kind of culture, as you said, of like, you know, being able to share this as a video for people to watch, like, you know, 
I have done, you know, while drinking a coffee in my kitchen. I mean, what is that relationship and how does that inform the kind of practice? Yeah, that's an interesting do? question, constantly evolving for me. So one of the conscious decisions I made right at the beginning of starting Black Atlantis was um, to just work with PowerPoint. Um, and basically, it's because PowerPoint's really crappy. <laughs> and it sort of, so you embed video in it <laughs> and you put sound in it, but it always has this kind of plasticky sheen. And I felt like that was sort of really important to sort of emphasize that kind of glitch, that kind of like the, like there was something mediating the experience and it wasn't like this kind of fully immersive thing. And also, um, the end of eating everything, which was this live performance that I put together, was also uh, very provisional and um, you know it wasn't very smoothly done. And again, I guess that's the Benjaminian influence. Um, and uh, I've I've often thought about that because I I this work I mean Black Atlantis has been installed in different formats. I, um, at one point, it was uh, the sound performance was. Um, uh, recorded onto cassette uh, in a in a gallery in Nanaimo in um, in British Columbia and uh, by a friend of mine and uh, Jesse Birch and so you could just go up to this uh, um, a boombox and just play the cassette you know and I, yeah I like that but generally it hasn't really been installed um, and with some of the some of the more subsequent pieces that I did, um, this one this one piece I I did called Retrograde Futurism, which is about a migrant ship that um, set sail from Cape Verde and was going to Canary Islands and then went missing, uh, and was found four months later um, in Barbados, and uh, that piece became kind of was in part sort of thinking about um the ways in which this boat it was called a, a coffin ship and the way it, the kind of conflation of body and boat through that designation um became a kind of i don't know like a twist on the futurist fantasy right of man becoming um but mm. also sort of thinking about the weather um and things like that um but the piece itself is like really a very, very souped up um, PowerPoint. You know, there's tons and tons of sound. It's sort of a cinematic experience. Um, but then again, really mediated by it being PowerPoint and it's been recorded and there's a recording of it online. And um, I was never comfortable with turning that into video, although I had plenty of sonic and visual elements to turn it into that. Um, it didn't seem quite right. And then, so I've I've thought about that, and then I guess recently, like not recently, last year I was um, invited by this group called International on Online, which is um, anyway, so it doesn't matter what they. Um, but I was invited by this group, and uh, they wanted me to to come and perform a piece of mine called on the Plantational scene. So this is a piece that I did where I was in Barbados and Trinidad and trying to think of thinks through uh, Donna Haraway and Anna Singh's designation of this current uh, geological era that we're in as the plantation scene. So sort of seeing the sort of genesis of the quote unquote Anthropocene through the plantation system, but sort of thinking, and so and so in there, um, 
the way they sort of formulate it, they go very quickly to the present. And I was like, no, I really want to think about what a plantation, how a plantation being in, on the side of a plantation might inflect this idea of the plantation scene. So these, this very contemporary term and then this long historical mm -hmm. one. Um, but anyway, so I was invited to perform this. And then of course COVID happened and I couldn't do that. And uh, they said, oh, you could record it if you want. And what I ended up doing, which I was really, really happy with, is I just, I was actually house sitting for friends. I didn't even have my own equipment. And um, so I just had my computer and I just did a screen recording of the PowerPoint and recorded the audio on my phone. And I did it in a single take and, you know, my computer, you know, bless its soul, like soul is soul, but it, you know, obviously it was glitching and slowing down. And so that became a part of the piece, like the sound of the pages turning, and, whatever small errors I had in reading. And so that was the first recording of something, uh, of one of those live uh, performances that I was really happy with, as opposed to something where I'd, you know, gone into a studio and recorded, you know, I've done that. I've done a version of that as well, where I've re-recorded yeah. voices and assembled it onto a timeline and turned it into a video. Because in that smoothness, something was yeah. lost. And, and for me, this became yeah. different. And so, yeah, that's interesting. And so... So I guess that would be one answer. And the other is that, of course, it's like I'd like to say again, that it is constantly evolving because now I've sort of embarked on a new project um, called Brown Atlantis, which is um, sort of thinking through the sort of implicatedness of uh, uh, indenture and, and transatlantic slavery and, and by extension then uh, thinking through histories of trade on the Indian and Atlantic oceans. Um, and the kind of work that I'm doing there, and it's all quite a, organic, I hadn't really planned it, is much more kind of immersive, installation-based, like surround sound. Uh, I have this piece that's um, opening in the Liverpool Biennial in, in, uh, quite shortly, and it's completely not in that realm. And right now I'm just, you know, practicing. <laughs> I'm just making, and I, I, I don't really know what it means <laughs> in terms of, like, my commitment to these glitchy processes, but it feels right. And so I assume that I'll figure out what has shifted or how to sort of retain those aspects of breakdown that I think are really important to historical narrative. Hmm. I mean, I think that kind of touches on something that I've been very, you know, struck by. And I have to admit that, you know, while we've never uh, met in person and I haven't actually attended one of your points, like I, you know, I, I've actually learned from you if, if I can be so bold and is that you're uh, one of the things, and I don't know if it's something you do intentionally or not. So, but it's something that I, you've kind of touched on previously is that you are someone who I would say invites people to make connections and you really kind of decolonize. And I use that word very precisely here. This, this type of knowledge provider that is often the academic has, where it's like, I have the knowledge and I'm gonna tell you it and I'm going to almost have a pathological need to be the explainer. And when I watch what you've done, and, and I have to admit, I mean, I, I, I've taken some of this ethos and I'm not saying that I'm good at it because I still find myself in this process, but it's like, you know, where you really invite people through a variety of means to make connections, to 
kind of, you know, take this kind of speculative principle and, and, and actually make it as part of your epistemology and praxis. Um, and, and I wonder like how you've been able to do that so on, how you've been able to, you know, kind of balance the fact that, I mean, you are extraordinarily knowledgeable about this and you obviously, I mean, people come out of this knowing more, <laughs> um, but the actual experience I have found has been one of a very different modality that it's not you explaining, but you providing opportunities and inviting people for a kind of informed speculation in themselves and the making of new connections in a way that I think you prompt, but don't inscript. And I'm wondering, like, is that something you did intentionally? Is that just part of your own process? But I mean, it's something that I've really been struck by when I've watched what you do. And, and, and maybe it's just me reading into it, but I, I, I find it really wonderful and, and something that really, you know, has at least for myself, but I, I, I'm sure as others, like, you know, demanded a reflection of in what ways, even when I'm speaking about these themes, am I still continuing in a modality of knowledge that, you know, reproduces these power relationships? Yeah. Oh, what an interesting way to, to phrase that. Um, I think, um, I mean, I don't think there's any one way to do that. I think that's definitely what I am trying to do. And it's a product of also just sort of thinking like that. Like I'm not a very cohesive thinker, you know? So for me, like I do think in fragments, it's just a kind of sensibility that I have um, for better, or for worse. And so what I'm trying to do is just sort of reflect that, you know, there's these things that I've assembled, you know, mentally, emotionally, whatever, politically, and they're not really resolvable. So all I can do is sort of present these fragments. And, um, but I am really influenced by that. I, you know, I was having this great conversation with um, Denise Ferrer de Silva recently about sort of the difference between prose and poetry. And um, she made this really amazing sort of uh, observation that, you know, with poetry, um, the meaning is between the lines. Um, and I, you know, for me, that's very inspiring. I mean, it's not always the case because I think prose can also do that. You know, there could be, you know, something shadowy that's unsaid. But I think figuring out ways to sort of make space for the unsaid is um, is kind of a big aspiration of mine. Um, but I also just think it's also certain projects require a certain kinds of tools right so I think for me there's a lot to be said about all of these histories um, but to kind of put the mortar in between them would be to sort of flatten them so um, and I think I mean I think that's what's quite nice about sort of moving between a kind of uh, quote-unquote artistic practice and an academic one is like you know, there's things that might seem frivolous if you're strictly academic, which are things that are like, you know, phrasing or the way something looks on a page or affect or thinking about, okay, if you're giving a talk, then what's the work that the sound can do on its own? You know, like what can it do that you don't, mm. you don't need to explain it because the sound is doing that already. You know, uh, what, what needs to be said then and what kind of speaking does say this visual thing that you element that you produce what what does that actually um uh what does that narrate or 
you know, and also net by narrative, I mean, also at the level mm. of like, it just gives you a feeling in your gut, you know, or often like things I choose are just things that I just have a gut feeling about, you know, um, like with the plantation scene piece, like the first image in the talk is a video that I shot the night I landed in Barbados, you know, and I was on this farm that used to be a plantation and, and property lines are not vastly different than they were than they are now. And uh, subsequently, I found out when I was walking through the space with my host is that there's still little bits of pottery on the ground that belong to people living in um, the the tenements where enslaved men and women were. So it's a really present history, but I didn't know. I mean, I kind of knew that vaguely, but the night I arrived, I was just walking at dusk and I just took out my phone and I just filmed the walk and you know, it didn't make any sense to me. It wasn't particularly well shot. It's very shaky, but to me, it had this kind of emotional resonance. And so it stayed, you know, and um, I guess like that's the kind of, I guess, uh, allowance that having a practice uh, affords you that, you know, a more um, disciplinary method wouldn't because you'd have to sort of think through why, you know, in a more rational way. Um, but in a way that that video does something that I couldn't really explain apart from the fact that it moved me. And so I trust that it'll move the person who sees it, you know? So I guess, um, just to go back like to something that you, you've kind of mentioned, I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the aspects is learning how to understand your intuition and to trust that and to bring that more into this. And, and I think that I've, you know, it's something that strikes me because we, we do that anyway, but we kind of keep it a secret, right? I mean, so I, I can't think of a single person who's done something worthwhile intellectually. Let's just even use that, you know, kind of broad term that at some fundamental level, didn't have a gut feeling that this was something that, you know, excited them or that they found interesting or that, you know, I mean, how many times have we, you know, just had an intuition that we should read this one extra article and that's where we found our insight, right? Um, and, you know, I wonder, like, I mean, in, in a sense, like, if we could talk a little bit more, like, I mean, the critical ways in which we can use this intuition, right? And then we can take this seriously and, and not treat this as, you know, just something where uh, we almost either have to hide it or pretend it doesn't exist or kind of, uh, I, I like the word you use, like, you know, make it seem frivolous mm -hmm. or not real. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, sometimes the most important things are very difficult to put into words. And um, as a, actually, as a as a supervisor, like when I supervise students, I, I I always tell them, you know, you do the work, you know, you read all the material and you do that. But the the best moments of your project is going to be when you are um, free floating through it and you're just brainstorming and you're writing things down that are really easy. And that thing that is really easy is because it's you just following, you know, this intuition that you have after you've done all the work of absorbing all the all the texts and materials uh, um, and I think that that is mm. kind of important but I also think that I mean if you I think academic work can do this too and I think there is this kind of exciting direction that 
academic publishing is, for example, going into, you know, where there are different formats. I'm thinking a little bit of, say, um, um, uh, Sadia Hartman's new book, where she uses critical fabulation. Um, and some of her pages of her book have drawings behind them. So she's combining image and text or a friend and colleague of mine, Renee Samawani, co-edited a book that's a bestiary. It's called Animalia, and it's basically a compilation from A to Z of different animals that were used or deployed through colonial practices. So it's these short two or three page fragments. Um, and the writing itself is, is quite scholarly. Um, but I think there is this understanding even for academics who don't see themselves as artists that that form is really important, you know, that um, mm. and that depending on what form the output takes, it it inflects on the content, you know, like you could have something that's long chapters or short chapters and it, it, it you know, affects how you read it. Um, but I think when you do move into practice and you can really hone in on things that are unsaid and different kinds of formal means with which to um, sort of pull in other parts of the body. So like for me, working with sound, I mean, I, I was making videos before I um, started Black Atlantis, but I hadn't really worked with sound on its own until I started this. And it was, it was because all of a sudden I realized that sound is something that is so physically, like it's such an embodied feeling and, 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 and it's really um, tactile. And there's all these kinds of affects that you can just get through uh, frequencies and pitch and so for example I, I I made this piece and I worked with a sound designer on it um, it's a friend of mine uh, named Will Saunders and what he was working a lot with was infrasonics and that's like when you um, take the frequency of sounds and move them sort of below the threshold of detectability and when that happens actually what it sort of enters your body and your your organs start resonating very, very, you know, like you don't notice it with your brain, but you notice it with your body. Um, and so if you are telling a story or if there's a, there's a kind of uh, others, other sonic elements that you do notice that they're inflected through that, you know? And um, so I think that th mm -hmm. those kind of possibilities are really interesting in terms of thinking about, I guess what you would call a kind of pedagogical approach or a way of conveying, or, you know, just telling a story. Um. Mm. 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 And I think that's also, you know, it, it's, it's very, uh, like, I mean, I'm even just thinking about it, like that, that sounds incredible. And, and, you know, it's even become something in which you can use that to, to express how so much of existence is unsaid but nevertheless visceral felt yeah. there, you know? And yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and I think that that's, that's a really interesting kind of a segue to something that I, I, I'm also particularly interested in. And it's kind of like ways in which, you know, we can allow people a feeling of embodiment and experience of time and, and, and different futures. I mean, I mean, you know, there's that famous, you know, quote from Jameson that, you know, it's it's easier for people to imagine the apocalypse than, uh, you know, a, you know mm -hmm. a world without capitalism. But for me, and, and 
it, it, it again, it's funny because of, for all the people who would know me, I mean, and I and I joke about this too. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not traditionally very creative, or 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 creative in, in, in maybe a traditional <laughs> way. I don't know, but I, I've kind of taken it as like you know a really serious point of practice, and you know that like you know we have to you know create political imaginaries that can feel embodied in the mm-hmm. now, right? And I just think about that, like, how do we begin to really do that? Like, how do we allow people the opportunities to, you know, experience emancipating futures in a way that they feel as if they're not just voyeurs too, but they're actually part of shaping? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um... I have to think about that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 oh, sorry. No. Uh, I just could. Could you just say it again, maybe? Because I feel like it, I was almost there, and then I. Yeah, I mean, so I guess it, it's. Let, let me put it in two ways. I mean, let's. So maybe we could. I, I could. I could rephrase it in a different way. So, in the one hand, you know. You've kind of worked on, you know, addition to Black Atlantis, like uh, uh, edited from uh, Futures of Fiction, and, and one of the things that I really liked about that was that it 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 um it, it was a speculative way in which getting people to rethink what the possibilities of different futures could be, right? So it was a literal expanding of political yeah. and social imaginaries. But then there's a certain way in which I think this ties up is that well, it's one. I mean, you know, science fiction has been around for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one thing to imagine. It's another thing right. to feel embodied in that, to feel like, oh, I can live it. So like, how do we kind of bring that kind of speculative that can be very in our heads to something that is almost feels like an embodied experience with others? And then I think the second part of that, and, and this is something is like, when we're able to do that, how do we make that so it's just not another kind of consumerist, voyeuristic experience in which people will like kind of feel like, okay, I'm, you know, watching and experiencing this potential future, but I, I'm, it's not really me feeling empowered to shape it in a kind of radical revolutionary way of interactivity and practice. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think in a way it has to do with the imagination. I think what happens, what gets co-opted by capitalism is our imagination, right? And through the imagination, what gets robbed is a sort of notion of the future. So what is the future? How does the future inflect the present? I mean, the future inflects the present in all kinds of ways, like whether it's in, you know, a relationship, a romantic relationship, a relationship to your family or to your job or to, you know, at every moment of the day, there's some element of the future that enters into it, whether you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow or whether you're thinking about what your kids are going to do in a few years, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that kind of infusion of the future into the present is this kind of interplay of how we live and embody our present and also how much that is fueled by our imagination. So um I guess a kind of corny sort of way of thinking about it is through a kind of authenticity of self, like in terms of someone narrating. So I'm just thinking of like, 
um, like people who write fiction, like not futuristic fiction, but just fiction. And uh, one of the things I've been doing since the lockdown started is just listening to a lot of uh, fiction podcasts on the New Yorker. And it's interesting because basically they take stories from any issue of the New Yorker, which is, you know, goes on over decades, right? And uh, and it just, a story can catapult you into another moment. Um, and the way, I mean, then I think, I think this goes for any kind of writing, whether it's academic writing or artistic practice or fiction writing is that if you're not striking a note with yourself, you're definitely not going to strike a note with anyone else. But also that, mm. I mean, maybe I'm not being that coherent, but I'm just thinking about like different affects that theoreticians produce. So say like, I remember when I was reading Edward Said as an undergraduate, I always felt like I was sitting by the fire, by, by a fireplace with uh you know, someone who was sort of leading me in this really warm and encouraging way. And then, you know, say I, I read Adorno, uh, I'll be sort of struck by the kind of brilliant angularity of language and thought, you know, and it takes a while to read, you know. And so I just think mm -hmm. that if you think about theory or philosophy or academic works as also having those affects and imagination that sort of pass under the register in a way, because that's mm -hmm. not the primary thing that makes those works like recognized, you know, mm. I'm not going to say important because I think that that is a bit of why mm. those works are important. Like they kind of convey a kind of affect that we don't log. Right. Because, but I think, I guess what my, what I'm trying to say is that there's different ways in which the imagination sort of brings in other possibilities. So how is it that you read fiction and you can imagine mm. you're in a different time or in a different reality or, um different kind of body than your own a different race or gender you know what i mean i think mm -hmm. and in that way that's how you that's the portal towards the future as well i don't know if that's making sense but i think mm. that um if say the direct like a drexian kind of worldview is that we live underwater and then you listen to their music and you listen to how they've made that mm. happen is like it's not just the stories, it's also they use this kind of analog quality of sound, and then there is the sound of water. And then actually there's yeah. um, one of the tracks that I think I want to share with you is by um, this Sierra Leonean um, uh, musician named Lamin Fofana, who also does this kind of, not quite Drexian, but a kind of subaquatic sort of... Um, uh, uh, texture to the Mediterranean. Um, mm. And he made a piece called um, that, or he's made work on on the Black Mediterranean, and then, which is you know an expansion of the idea of the Black Atlantis, sorry, the Black Atlantic into the Mediterranean, um, but also follows work of Black thinkers like Sylvia Winter. But I mean, basically, what you do, you sort of imagine when you hear these these tracks, a kind of subaquatic world, and it's you know. We're so we're so mm. um, fixated on the visual, like in a way, you know. When we think about representation, it's visual, not sonic. But when you hear this kind of a, what what does a subaquatic world sound like? And you know, if you take out language and something that would contextualize it, you have textures and atmospheres. And um, I think the the same gesture that will take you deep underwater and imagine some subaquatic 
kind of other world is the same one that could take you into the future. Mm, mm. And and I think that that's a really beautiful way to uh, put it. I mean, I, I think just from pop culture, two examples of that. I mean, one is Subcutter Cardis had. I don't know if you've seen it um, on that show, Bojack Horseman, um, yeah. which I don't know if you've ever watched, but they do. And it, it's kind of, it's, well, it's an animated show, but they did, they did, they, they did an entire episode of uh, him underwater and living in this underwater kind of world. And, you know, there was no talking because he, he couldn't talk underwater. And at first, as a viewer, you know, I mean, you, you're watching this and it's obviously kind of an adult cartoon, but, you know, you, you, you're kind of uncomfortable, right? For the mm -hmm. first five minutes. Um, and they really captured like the sound and things. And then all of a sudden, it's a different kind of experience where it's not voyeuristic as someone, but like you are literally kind of being implicated into a different environment yeah. literally like oh you know and I remember thinking you know the extent to which by forcing me to suspend my disbelief it allowed me to right. believe in different things just like in this half an hour thing and then and then I remember like that great Kate Bush song um running up the hill right like where it's literally about like could we could we switch experiences and change his bodies and I, I, you know, when I, when I, I remember when I realized what the lyrics were about when I was younger, I, you know, instead of just kind of enjoying the song, I, I really went like, you know, obviously that song has a lot to say about, you know, privilege, white privilege, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought about like, why am I so attached? Like, why would, why would that not be exciting? Why is that so right. scary? You know? And so I think like what you're saying, like, I really like that in, in, in the sense that like, these all come together in a way that invites us to be willing and open in a very, very kind of visceral and imaginative and speculative way about what it would be to exist differently. Not just different alternatives, but like existentially mm -hmm. differently. Like, you know, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I really like that answer. That's, it, you know, it's something I think about a lot and it's, it, it was very enlightening for me. That was oh, really on point. Um, I mean, I think the last um, question I, I was going to ask, and um, I appreciate the time you've given it, is like, so, you know, you've done so many different things, right? Um, but one of the questions I kind of want, like, to, 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 to kind of get to is, is the kind of materiality of it. And I don't just mean in terms of the form, but, like, just, like, you know, the pragmatics of, you know, working in a neoliberal universe, I mean, Goldsmith is a pretty incredible one, but it never, and being able to do this incredible work. And also then just the process of like, you know, the pragmatics of, you know, you know, being able to run out space or being able to go different places, being able to, you know, find the time I mean, because this is this is creative labor right i mean I, I think that it's important to recognize that so i mean most people i think you know they see these things and it sounds amazing but i think sometimes it's good to deconstruct like what's actually at stake like how did you forge literally forge these spaces right for yourself and what kind of lessons would you impart to others who you know are willing to be similarly courageous and you know try to do the same 
I mean, I've been very lucky uh, in terms of um, from an institutional perspective. I think, for example, if I was uh, teaching in the U.S. or Canada, I think this kind of hybrid work wouldn't be as recognized, say, towards tenure or something like that. Like, either you have an art practice or you have an academic mm -hmm. practice, where is your book? Um, whereas where I work um, is considered practice research. And so I'm not expected to, you know, like I, I'm not feeling any pressure to turn this into a monograph or to um, uh, publish in referee journals. I've been really allowed to, I've been given this great privilege to just do what I'm doing and, and that gets recognized for, you know, even for ref, like it's like a practice research submission to be really, really um, on the ground, you know, wow. like, that's, that's, that's how it is. And for me, a lot of it just happened quite organically. I mean, I gave this talk, I gave my first Black Atlantis talk and it was recorded and put online and uh, then some people saw it and invited me to give other talks and um, and then I would get invited to contribute a publication. I'd say, well, I have the script for this thing. Can I just develop it into a piece for you? And they'd say, fine. And so basically Black Atlantis ended up becoming just, you know, it's it's five different essays in various formats. It's also these sort of you know, performance slash video slash, you know, other media. Um, and then um, the book also came together, the Futures in Fiction also came together really organically. It's, uh, two colleagues of mine and I, uh, Simon O'Sullivan and Henriette Gunkel, um, we organized a speaker series and then we just thought, you know, let's, why don't we turn this into a book? And we did it really quickly. Like we thought, oh, we could, we could either go with an academic press and it will take the time it takes or we do it very quickly and we went with repeater um and repeater i think yeah. are you know they're a great publisher um and they um and my, our, our former colleague uh, mark fisher actually um suggested we go with them and they were really wonderful to work with and you know it just it just happened really easily you know we just we put you know people were really gracious about um providing uh, the works they presented. And then this other book that I have, that's literally coming out any day now, um, I think they're mailing us their copy, uh, <laughs> is this uh, Visual Cultures as Time Travel. And that's a that's mm -hmm. actually part of a, a book series that my, that's, uh, that's produced by my department and, and it's published by Sternberg and distributed by MIT. So it's, quite, it's a really nice sort of easy format, but it's, um, just uh, two essays by myself and my co-author, uh, Henriette Gunkel, and then a conversation. Um, so all of that just came really easily. Um, and in terms of advice, I mean, I also just think it's a, I don't know, I feel like I was like, maybe the last of a generation that had to kind of bridge this divide in this way, because I think now mm -hmm. there's so many more practice-based programs uh, everywhere i think here in the uk they've been around for if i if i'd studied here i probably would have been exposed to this kind of hybrid practice earlier 
Um, but in certainly mm. in Canada, that's it's newish. Um, and I think the kind of clunkiness mm. with which I've had to move between one and the other is, I mean, it's kind of nice. I think it's a bit, you know, like you're not taught how to do it. So you have to find your own way to bring these things together. And then, you know, that's sort of how it happened for me. But I think for, you know, younger scholars, I think this is, it's sort of built into the program. I think there's more of a recognition across many disciplines, you know, that you can, that, you know, the visual or the sonic or, you know, definitely forms of research. I, I, I co-run the PhD program and, you know, we do this research method seminar and this is one of the things we do talk about is just uh, we recently did a, a seminar on um, sort of technologies of image and sound. And we, we were talking a lot about sound practices. And I guess the, the message that we wanted to sort of impart was that whether you work with sound or not, um, thinking about sound provides a methodology with which to work and to sort of think about certain things that don't come up elsewhere. But if you take that method, mm -hmm. you can take it, to any kind of practice or any kind of writing practice, you know, so I think that's kind of an exciting moment mm. to be in um, uh, mm. pragmatically. But I think, you know, the kind of rough around the edges, like, so my, my project's quite rough around the edges. And I think that might be something that is like, wouldn't come up as often because I think people kind of are more encouraged to bring these things together, but I've really enjoyed the rough around the edges. Like for me, that's, mm kind of part of the point is to not make something um, too resolved. Like to me, I like things mm. that are not resolved because then it's up to the person watching it or listening to it to do that. Mm. I think I think that's that's really wonderful because I think as you mentioned with the glitch and as you mentioned with the rough around the edges, it it is something that is truly practice and inviting, right? It, it's kind of like, this is unfinished. This is something that isn't meant to be as, you know, as our dear leader would say in the UK, <laughs> oven ready, but something that, you know, we make together iteratively. And, you know, I just to share a final experience, if I may, like just, you know, I, I remember the first work book I did on authoritarian capitalism one of the really regrets that I had, and this is because I wasn't exposed mm. to this type of research, right, was that I thought, it, you know, I thought it was a, I'm very, uh, well, as, as much as, you know, you're, uh, at least I'm always <laughs> my harshest critic, I guess, but, you know, the, the one thing that I do regret is that, you know, because it was such a kind of rigorous, you know, critical political economy piece, you know, it, it was essentially, you know, 300 pages of, you know, the relationship between marketization and authoritarianism. And I don't think I captured how uneven this was, how it wasn't such a coherent project. And and as you said, the sounds and the smells of this, I mean, I, like, you know, I wasn't able to fully capture like how this was inspired by my year, you know, teaching mm -hmm. economics in China. And, you know, and so that always stuck with me because it was, it was a kind of like, did I do an injustice to something in the sense that, I made this seem so much more clinical mm. than it was, right? So much more non-visceral, but also just, you know, I don't even know how to put it. I mean, non-real, right? Um, so definitely, I mean, I think, you know, for all of us, whatever research that we do or whatever we do, like 
to always kind of remember that and to to you know to continually I like the word you used earlier to allow these types of agencies these types of experiences these types of richness to infiltrate our present so that it doesn't flatten our past or futures like yeah I mean, I, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, much. I haven't seen this or read this work, but I, I'm sure you're not, um, you're doing yourself a slight disservice. I'm sure it has a lot more going on than, than what you're saying. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but honestly, I, it's been so amazing having you on, uh, you know, the, the podcast and, and I'm going to put a link to, to all of your things and, and I'm really excited about your new book coming out any day now. Um, so, I mean, you know, but there is another world that is pot, uh, possible. And I mean, you are such a, a big part of that and, and you're making it every day. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. This was really oh, inspiring. Thank you so much for this invitation. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now. <laughs>